15. Good evening and welcome to the second in our series of webinars with Rathbone's Investment Management. These are called the Earth Convention and we're thrilled to be here tonight with you. Um, these webinars are looking at the biggest challenges of our time, which is to do with climate change and how on earth we're going to go forward. We love being a partner with Rathbones because their policy is to invest for the long term, to invest for the future, not just for today or just for tomorrow. So this webinar is going to look at the green transition in energy and finance. We're thrilled that about a thousand people have joined up to be with us tonight, um, which is a testament both to the importance of the topic, but also a huge testament to the brilliance and the quality of our speakers. Um, they are Fahana Yamin, who is a environmental lawyer and activist, Jonathan Porritt, the founder of Forum for the Future and the an author, Mike Berners-Lee, who wrote the wonderful There is No Planet B, who has also advised his companies on how they will transition, and Rathbone's own Matt Crossman, who is in charge of their sustainability program. So before I introduce them, I just want to say a couple of words about the last session we had, which was four weeks ago. We had um, Christiana Figueres, who as many of you may know, was the lead architect of the Paris Agreement in 2015. And she laid it out very much on the line. Pandemic, this pandemic cannot be seen as a chance for a pause in our work to tackle climate change. It has to be a chance for a great reset, a great chance to think differently. We only have a decade in which to get our, our emissions down by 50%. If we don't do this, then all our ambitions to get to net zero by 2050 just won't happen. The challenge is too big. We were buoyed up, though, last time because a couple of days earlier, China had just announced its huge commitment to get to net zero by 2060. Um, of course, you know, the, the Chinese are, well, they know what business is like. This is a clear-sighted, forward-looking decision as to what will be workable in the future and what we have to do. It is such a big step that we can take courage from, but it's also just a step along this path that we all have to be on. Now, what's exciting about tonight's session is that we're talking about finance and green energy. And certainly in terms of, say, the government, the government is quite slow. We're not the Chinese after all. And the private sector and the banks and the finance industry are the people who can do things really quickly. Just look at what Legal and General did today. So how are we going to come out of this pandemic and how are we going to make sure that this is not business as usual, but in fact, business into the future. So we have a very simple format tonight. Each of our four distinguished speakers will speak for seven or eight minutes. I'll ask a few questions, they can talk to each other, and then over to you. So please put your questions in the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen, and we'll come to as many as we can. I hope you all got your Rathbone papers from the last session. Uh, there is uh, the author of the main piece, Matt, as I said, is going to be speaking tonight. And we're thrilled that there is a second edition, which is also going to be going out to you all after today. So our first speaker tonight is Jonathan Porritt, 
who picks up in a way where Christiana left off because the title of his new book, which has been out for a couple of months, is Hope in Hell, A Decade to Confront the Climate Emergency. Jonathan was the founder of the Forum for the Future, which is the UK's leading sustainable development charity. He's been a member of the Green Party, director of Friends of the Earth, as well as a trustee of the WWF. Um, Jonathan's been involved in this pretty much all his life, as I think he's going to tell us. And what's wonderful, many things are wonderful about him, but he is still optimistic. So Jonathan, over to you. Um, just a decade, it's a tall order. <laughs> uh, thank you, Rosie. Not so much optimistic as hopeful. And I do see a big difference between optimism and hope, which um, I may get a chance to talk on. Uh, yes, a lifetime, I guess. I joined the Green Party in 1974 still going strong now. So I dare say there have been quite a few occasions in my life where I've said, if we don't get something done within the course of the next decade, it'll be too late. Bit by bit, that has become our reality. And as you heard from Rosie, Christiana has been laying this out very clearly, we have this decade. The pace of change required in that decade is already extraordinary. We already have to see emissions of greenhouse gases reduced by around 7% per annum for each of these 10 years through to 2030, which is a wholly unprecedented rate of change, which it's actually quite difficult for a lot of people to get their heads around. So a good thing that we can now definitely see a quickening going on in all sorts of ways, in terms of what's happening in the planet today and what's happening in terms of our response to it. I'm not going to dwell very long on the quickening in planetary phenomena. 2020 has been an utterly horrific year. You could honestly barely believe just how grim the signals are coming back from the planet. And it doesn't get any better now in terms of wildfires, uh, floods, storms, you name it. Pretty much at every point in every week, you've got another climate-induced disaster unfolding and impacting on the lives of huge numbers of people now. And of course, causing untold misery. We know that stuff, it's there, it's the backlog to our lives at the moment. But set against that, we've also got a marked quickening in terms of the responses to that. Not so much from government, to be honest, and I don't put much store in terms of what governments are capable of doing at the moment, which for me necessitates a very different course of political action than the one is being tracked out at the moment. But we're definitely seeing an uptick in terms of business responses. Pretty much every day we get another example of how businesses have internalized the need to move a lot faster. We've got a real strong showing now from civil society organizations across the world. The incredible energy injected into this scene from Extinction Rebellion, and particularly for me from young climate activists has been utterly um, remarkable. So all of that stuff is really important. On top of that, there is now undoubtedly a quickening within the investment community. And I can see this for myself just in terms of the ways in which a huge number of people now are commenting on the importance of looking at the power of redirecting capital flows in our society to ensure that we have more rather than less sustainable outcomes. Mm -hmm. In a capitalist society, it basically all comes down to what we do with capital. And if we don't get that particular story sorted out, we're still gonna be in an impossible situation. Now that is potentially a really exciting thing. I heard the wonderful David Blood of Generation Investment 
uh, just this morning saying that this transition out of the world of fossil fuels into the new energy world, predominantly renewables, but also storage, efficiency, grids, intelligence, all the rest of it, that is the biggest single business opportunity in the history of humankind. Just because of the sheer scale of investment required to drive a just transition out of hydrocarbons into renewables. So this is giving the other half of the picture that we've had to rely on for really the last 10 years or so, which has been a, a divestment driven picture where more and more people have decided the best thing they can do is withdraw their investments from those assets, from those companies that are causing the damage. And it's a been a pretty remarkable story. It's easy to forget just how much effort went into ensuring that something like 12 to $13 trillion has been pledged to be withdrawn from fossil fuel investments. That is a not insignificant figure, as you can imagine. In fact, it's about 16% of the total value of global capital markets. But it was never going to be the change sufficient in itself. We had to have this other story about being able to drive the thing through positive opportunities as well as through the negative threats of withdrawal of one's um, capital. So that's been powerful. And you can see how that is now impacting on capital markets. And there's a ton of other stuff going on. This is now not just about ethics. This is about people responsible for other people's money, making judgment calls about how best to steward those assets that they've put, been put in charge of. So when companies like BP and Shell suddenly start writing down tens of billions of dollars of assets, and Bernard Looney, the chief executive of BP, starts talking about the point when BP will be able to generate equally good profits for shareholders from renewables as from hydrocarbons, you begin to get a sense of what that quickening looks like. So for me, this is definitely an upside. There is no doubt that capital markets are on the move, and I'm sure Matt will be talking uh, much more about that in his presentation. You can see it all over the place, the response of different international institutions. If you go back not so very far in history, those international institutions were basically dependent on rather conservative initiatives like the UN's Principles of Responsible Investment. Now everything is beginning to cluster around this notion about responsible, sustainable investment. You've got academics around NGOs looking at all of this stuff. And of course, coalitions of investors coming together. I was just reading yesterday about the latest initiative from the Net Zero Asset Owners Alliance. You have to get used to all these complicated acronyms. Um, the Net Zero Asset Owners Alliance, which is now talking about quickening its rate of getting out of exposed vulnerable fossil fuel stocks into alternative stocks. And they are responsible for assets under management of $2.4 trillion. So we're not talking small stuff here. We're talking really a real power base now in the way capital markets look at all of this. So I'm under no illusions about this, however. I'm trying to stick on the right side of my hopefulness, but I am extremely realistic about that because we are still to a certain extent dependent on a generation of politicians who have no real aptitude for or appetite for the kind of leadership that is required to drive this. And that means we will need to look to a very different kind of politics. And we'll need to do that also because let's be completely realistic tonight. There are huge numbers of people in the financial community, in the asset management community, who are still basically driven by old dogma, old 
old-fashioned notions of greed of one kind or another and are still massively powerful as incumbent forces in today's economy. We need to, to remind ourselves, just to give a little sense of reality here, that since 2016, global banks have invested something like $2.7 trillion in fossil fuel mm. assets of one kind or another. That's a staggering amount of money. That is just unbelievable that we've still got people who are doing that. So for me, I'm going to end with a little quote from David Attenborough because there's never any session that doesn't require that quote from David Attenborough. He would never have given voice to this kind of sentiment a year ago, but now this is the kind of stuff David Attenborough is doing. It is completely crazy that our banks and our pension funds are still investing in fossil fuels when these are the very things that are jeopardizing the future that we should be saving for. That's probably quite close now to a normal opinion amongst yeah. the ranks of the establishment. Yeah, Jonathan, thank you very much. I mean, I, th I think you're absolutely right. This is becoming a normal opinion, but I mean, it's still, we've got yeah. a long way to go before it moves. So uh, our next speaker, um, Fahana Yamin is an internationally recognized lawyer. She was involved in the Paris talk. She's uh, CEO of Track Zero, coordinator of Camden Think and Do. She's advised countries and governments on climate change for over 30 years. And she's also the co-author of This Is Not a Drill, an Extinction Rebellion Handbook, which I can see behind her right shoulder. It's a pink book and it's really terrific. Um, She's also been involved in direct action. And I was interesting, Jonathan, when you said, you know, we need new courses of action. And I think we all agree that the new courses of action are a lot of the reasons why we can sit here tonight and have a little bit of um, optimism, but clearly not enough. So, so Fahana, wh where do you stand on all this? Thank you. Come. Well, thank you for having me and thank you for um, these wonderful debates. I watched the, the one that you had a month ago um, and I guess what I want to say is a little bit different. Um, it's, and I feel like this uh, vocabulary that we're now using of optimism and hope and, you know, actually I don't think that's very helpful. Um, and I'll say why in a minute, but I think we're on, where are we at this moment in time? We've all agreed that this is a very defining moment and it's not just our vanity, you know, that makes us sort of say that I've, I've been involved in, 30 years of climate negotiations, I've done the, you know, the big COP, you know, every sort of four or five years, we have an epic kind of COP that is meant to, you know, pull us into the next sort of stage. We've had the epic summits. Um, so I, I feel like there's a much bigger 400 year old story that we're in, you know, a story which is an epic ideological, political, social battle uh, that is, uh, coming to the end of a sort of cycle uh, and whether it comes to that that end of that cycle or not uh, is really what we're grappling with and the start of this really for us in the UK is the sailing of the Mayflower and a sister boat called Speedwell from Plymouth to the new world to the new world 400 years ago last month um, and that was the start of an extraordinary set of developments that resulted in what are now the foundations of global capitalism and the start of a very huge and humongous uh, um, reshaping of the natural world and the political world and our social world that resulted in essentially colonialism, 
huge genocide, huge amounts of ecocide, huge amounts of appropriation of, of wealth, uh, and, and which built the foundations of the system that we are now trying to change because that system has caused devastating damage, climate damage, biological diversity, you know, soils, oceans, you know, you name it, whatever direction you look at, whether it's below, sideways, above, you know, we are uh, in the middle of a, a crisis of irreversible, global, you know, biblical sort of scale damage that is happening right now, right now, it's happening already. And it's not uh, uh, wise, in my view, to still keep saying that this will happen. I hate the word you know, will in any lecture now. It's like, it's not the case that climate change will happen. Climate chaos is happening for the vast majority of the world right now. And that climate chaos is happening on top of a world which is very devastated, which is at the brink, as I said, of ecological and social disintegration for many, many uh, large parts of the population. The whole of the region, you know, the middle of our map is, is becoming uninhabitable already and full of conflicts and water security, food shortages, And we have a very unequal global uh, system, which is producing huge amounts of obesity and the linked diseases that go with that, heart disease, diabetes, uh, ill health, uh, mental health issues, as well as you know, producing uh, sort of 2 billion people who are malnourished. This is the kind of scale of uh, 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 issues that we have. And um, I think for that reason, social justice and demands for equality will dominate and are dominating our political and social systems. And we cannot just respond to those by saying, you know, our systems are responding and they, they're now getting a little bit better. This is not good enough. This is the, the real fact is that, you know, you know, being at 16% is what led me last year to join Extinction Rebellion and become a rebel. The 16% is not good enough. It's the 84% of, you know, the economy that is still not covered, frankly, by even net zero by 2050 targets. It is not covered by that. Only 50% of the economy, very broadly speaking, globally, at the very best stretch of, you know, you know counting, is covered by this scientific target, which is frankly a target that I championed. It's one of the big ideas that I had for Paris that we just do a a complete phase out and try and get that as a North Star goal in the Paris Agreement, and which frankly is now totally inadequate. And you know, governments, uh, countries, companies, individuals didn't pick up that gauntlet of becoming net zero after Paris. It's now five years on, and we are totally uh, uh, amiss in terms of that trajectory. So for me, 2030 is the new 2050. If you must have a target, let's accept what it is, it's a total phase out. You will have some emissions if you aim for zero right now, then you may get to uh, 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 that very steep trajectory, which is uh, sort of now required. And that I think is where we need to be. The, the other kind of uh, point I quickly wanna make, I know I've only got one minute left or something, I think maybe. Um, we've talked endlessly um, in silos and in very technical language, you know, we've got these big vocabularies, mitigation, the prevention of greenhouse gases, adaptation, you know, adjusting to the sort of incremental changes that might happen. And actually what I want to say, and my sort of sound bite at the end is that reparations and restoration 
are the two big concepts that we must now firmly use as our compass points. We must use reparations and restoration because of the huge amount of loss and damage that is being felt and experienced by the, the vast majority of the world today. And that you know, is a source of comfort because people everywhere, they don't have to consult a book anymore or a, a scientific report. They just look out the window and look at their lives and they see climate impact already. So that's a good thing, but it gives us also an obligation to really examine uh, you know, whether these cops, which I'm a cop sort of guru and an insider, but whether they can really match up to and deliver the real expectations, the real hopes, the real uh, uh, ways in which we have to uh, address and uh, you know, move to a, a kinder, more compassionate and totally different uh, society, which is not based on the foundations that we had 400 years ago. Thank you. I'll carry on if I have more minutes. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Again, yeah, that was that was brilliant. Thank you. But you raised so many points, which um, we'll we'll try and find the time to come back to um, reparation and restoration. And and I think your expression that you know that we are now in the uh, twenty thirty is the new twenty fifty is a very you know interesting. I mean, ten years is such a short time. Um, now our next speaker is Matt Crossman, who is the stewardship director for Rathbones, who he oversees all the work of the stewardship and responsible investment committees um, and ensures all the, the active voting at AGMs and a lot of involvement with um, the people who work with Rathbones. And as I say, Matt has contributed a piece to both of the climate papers. Um, Matt, what do you make of what you've heard so far? And um, where you see the role of a company like yours and finance in, well, in this next 10 years, these vital 10 years ahead of us. So much nodding from my side of things <laughs> as I hear my two-year-old son screaming at me through the wall, you know, that mm. pressure I feel very personally. Um, I'm really I'm just blown away by the contributions so far. So much food for thought for me. I'm really grateful for them and I hope you can dig into the details a bit longer. Um, you know, 2020 has been a year of firsts and not all of them welcome, but those three monumental moves in the climate space that we've seen, and I'll just mention them again briefly, they seemed utterly inconceivable only a year ago. You know, for someone like me, I've been working on the interface of climate and business for nearly two decades, uh, and it's been astonishing to watch. So when we first, as Rathbun Greenbank, started asking climate-related questions at company AGMs in 2006, we never thought we'd see two of the UK's biggest banks announce targets to cut emissions in line with the Paris Agreement. When we filed resolutions asking BP and Shell to adopt targets on cutting emissions back in 2015, we never thought we'd see what Jonathan mentioned, a major oil company committing to cutting production. Mm. Uh, and if you followed this space for a while, the, the very idea of China adopting any sort of public target on climate feels a bit more like the plot of a Netflix miniseries than reality. <laughs> um, you know, I'm responsible, as you mentioned, for helping Rathbones work out this vision of becoming a more responsible investor, helping us think through how we can achieve our aim of being a more responsible business generally, putting this into brass tacks, some of the stuff that Jonathan was mentioning. You know, looking at how we consider ESG, environmental, social governance issues, into our investment work. But also, you know, what we do with the companies we're invested in now, how we use our voice to influence and advocate for change. You know, I think 
finance has a huge role to play in moving society towards that more sustainable future. If we look at the investments that are needed to deliver the sustainable development goals, you know, a broader set of goals of which climate action is a fundamental part, we see that investments of between three and four billion US dollars will be needed each year to the end of this decade. So just to put extra kind of spice to that urgency, that size of investment needed, you know, without the mass involvement of global finance, we, we simply won't see the kind of change we need. But, but what's holding finance back? And in my work in this area for, as I say, quite a little while now, one question keeps coming up, whether you talk to trustees, journalists, clients, you know, most people think financially that there must be some penalty in doing good. There must be some downside in aligning your investments to that stark challenge that Jonathan and my fellow panelists have, have, have laid out so far. And I don't know if any of us can remember the start of the documentary, An Inconvenient Truth. Uh, and it's that quote attributed there to Mark Tain that what gets us into trouble is not what we don't know, but what we know for sure that just ain't so. You know, never were true words spoken, ironically, probably not by Mark Twain. But for us in sustainable finance, for that, that idea that a climate-focused, responsible approach to investment is bad financially, that it's that which stops people getting their money working towards the low-carbon transition. So how do we know that's not true? Well, we have a decade of evidence now studies that look at the link between a company's environmental, social and governance policies and their financial performance find an overwhelmingly positive relationship. Good corporate social responsibility is proven to be linked to better financial performance compared to peers. We can also seek other returns from our investments. We can engage with them and push for change. But how can that be positive? How can talking to companies and getting to commit to net zero targets, how can that be a financial positive for our investors? Well, again, the academic data bears it out. There is a clear positive relationship between companies who are the target of these environmental, social and governance engagements and dialogue by investors and financial outperformance. You know, it's true that taking an account of a much wider set of factors than the purely financial ones is proving to deliver value in all sorts of ways. And it's that which is pushing that acceleration we're seeing. And you know, we've certainly seen that in our engagement with the oil and gas industry on climate. We labored long and hard to shift a major European oil company to adopt any kind of emissions reduction target. But once they went there, they committed to lead. And meanwhile, across the pond, the laggard sector peer has just been delisted from the prestigious Dow Jones Industrial Average. You know, leading is the only place to be in this debate if you want any kind of future as a company by 2030. And, you know, thankfully, this insight, it's working its way into the corridors of power and uh, to the places of fantastic uh, Houses of Parliament um, <laughs> curtains like yours, Rosie. To give you an example, we've been looking at this whole area of green finance in the fixed income market for many, many years. And the manager of our Rathbone Ethical Bond Fund is invited periodically to speak with the debt management office, the office that issues UK gilts, those fixed income investments, which are the bedrock of a lot of people's pensions. And he describes a, an almost pantomime annual eye rolling ritual. And senior ministers and civil servants would stare at him over their reading glasses when he would suggest for the 15th time that the UK should issue ring-fenced green gilts. And for years, my colleague there was a pariah. But now, well, there's huge demand in the UK market for green gilts, which are surely not far away. Just last week, 
investors with a combined total asset base of 10 trillion pounds declared their support for green plus gilts. It's a clear message for our financial, uh, for our political leaders to bear in mind as they look to build back better post COVID. So I guess what's my key takeaway? Well, when thinking about climate action, you simply can't leave your money out of the equation. Big or small, wherever your money is and who it's with makes a huge difference. From pensions to insurance to investments like with Rathbones, the more responsible managers among us know that finance is essential to the green transition. And we need that critical mass to get us over the final hurdles to 2030, that mass mobilisation of green finance. And thankfully it's happening. As I mentioned last week, we saw the banking giant HSBC bow to investor and NGO pressure and announce plans to be a net zero bank, looking to reduce carbon emissions from their portfolio of customers. This follows on with amazing work done by the charity Share Action with Barclays in the UK earlier this year, who also stated an ambition to go net zero. But there were investors pushing them even further at their AGM. And I guess finally, don't forget the power of consistent advocacy by a vocal minority. In our work, we've seen major decision makers swayed into pro-climate actions, claiming to have been inundated by calls from their underlying clients and investors, when in reality, they'd probably fielded two or three phone calls and a few emails. You know, change happens in really unpredictable ways. I'm sure you've looked at the news over the last few years and wondered how say something like the Me Too movement got so big so quickly, having been an obvious issue for so long, or why suddenly ocean plastics were on everyone's minds. Well, just as uh, Lenin was astounded by the speed of the Russian revolution, change actually happens pretty rapidly once the dam is breached. And we use this societal permission model when we think about our engagement activities. People have different thresholds of when they'll stand up and be counted on an issue, the more they hear people saying things that feel that permission to say what they've always felt, that's been the case with environmental issues now. You know, the last few years have seen the floodgates open. It's not niche anymore. I think this is true of climate change. We are seeing people step off the sidelines and get involved. And I just want to finish with a little personal story. My mum was a physics teacher and she retired uh, three years ago. But last summer she said to me, Matt, I'm running for the local council down in Dorset because I want to make a difference in climate change. So I'll just leave you with that thought. It's young people like Barnaby in the room next to me, but also my 70 year old mum who got elected as a councillor down in Sherburne in Dorset to try and push climate action. If we all pull together and crucially, if we all get our money in the right places, we can take advantage of all those trends that Jonathan and was, was mentioning earlier on. Rosie, back to you. Thank you so so much, Matt. That was great. I love the idea of your mother um, running for the council. And uh, yeah, that's. Uh, I think I think you're right that people are now trying to figure out how to be on the right side of history. And the sudden dawning realization that a lot of people, I mean, are going to become not just our bits of fossil fuels going to be stranded assets, but there's going to be a lot of people who are, so to speak, stranded people. Um, Mike Berners-Lee is our next speaker. Um, he is the author of How Bad Are Bananas? There Is No Planet B. He has been an environmental campaigner, I think, forever. He's Professor of Sustainability at Lancaster University. He's the founder of Small World, World Consulting, and he actually goes into companies who give him a call, and he tries to figure out how they're going to change their ways. And um, from what I gathered from talking to you before, Mike, you're 
you're optimistic, but there's also a, more big steps that we have to take. It's not just a question of um, looking at those emissions targets. Is that right? Well, I'll, I'll come to where I am on the optimism front in a, uh, in, in a few minutes, perhaps. But uh, And actually, I feel like a relative new kid in this because I've only worked on climate change for maybe 15 years or so full time. <laughs> and, uh, um, but, you know, it's, it's great, you know, the way the agenda's moved on. So, you know, 15 years ago, walking into companies, asking them to look at their carbon footprints. I mean, you know, you, you're just looked at as if you're some sandal wearing weirdo. Um, you know, halfway, th you know, maybe in 2013, I co-wrote a book with Duncan Clark on the big picture on climate change. And, you know, at the end of that, we were, we were, the two of us were kind of, we were just looking at each other, scratching our heads going, come on, you know, this is, this is crazy. Cause the stuff we've laid out here feel is so, you know, it's, it's actually pretty simple. And it's, you know, really basic stuff that wasn't like, it wasn't even mainstream that the world needs to leave the fuel in the ground. And Duncan and I were just looking at each other going, look, feels like the global brain is just mentally ill here. You know, humanity just feels so sick because this, this stuff is not rocket science and we're just carrying on regardless. Incredibly, I'd say that was the height of my pessimism for sure. Things moved on inch by inch, but I'd say I totally agree with this idea of a quickening. So the last two years, really hearteningly, uh, you know, it, it does feel like, you know, this big question of can humanity wake up? Well, it feels more hopeful, certainly than it, than it did two years ago. So I'd say, you know, two things are happening. On the one hand, you know, as we've been hearing, you know, science has been getting, you know, a lot more scary. And if we're not feeling scared, at, uh, at some of the stuff we're hearing, then, then we, we absolutely should be. But against that, the evidence that, you know, my, my analogy would be that, you know, humanity has just had its head in the sands. And, you know, the evidence that that head is starting to come out of the sand is, you know, it's stronger than it's ever been. And, you know, maybe it's moved one millimeter and that's the hardest millimeter. And that, you know, as Matt said, you know, maybe if we all pull hard now, then, um, you know, it's possible. It might be a very short space of time before the head really comes out of the sand. We wake up and we start making the change that we need. So just to just to stand back and look at, you know, what that change is. So I think it's inescapably clear that if you want to deal with climate change, you need to look at it as one symptom of something much bigger that's going on, as Bahana also alluded to. So, you know, here we are, suddenly this incredibly powerful species and climate change is just one symptom of the fact that we are throwing our weight around on this planet in a way that it can't cope with. So we have a whole huge systemic interdependent set of challenges. So on the physical challenges, we've got climate change, biodiversity, pollutions, we've got disease threats, we've got a rising population, we've got pressure coming from all kinds of directions that we need to deal with at once. Um, the good news is that's technically solvable, but underneath all of that are a whole lot of inescapably linked in challenges such as, you know, what is our relationship with technology? How do we do economics? A whole reworking of how we do politics. What about inequality? Because like it or not, 7.8 billion of us are on the same, are on the same planet in the same boat um, together. And, you know, linked in with this questions definitely about investment and where does all our money go, as we've heard. And a fundamental question about the role of business. You know, so here in the Anthropocene, this era when 
when um, you know humans are so powerful compared to the planet we're on. Um, it's it's not okay for a business to exist primarily to make money. If if that's your primary reason for existence, you will do damage. There's no question about it. So the primary reason for existence has to be something to do with the health of people and planet. But however indirectly for for all all organisations, and um, so the question now, uh, and this is the question for. Uh, Go for asset managers to be asking is to what extent is can a company actually claim that they are, uh, you know, they are that everything they are doing is pushing for, uh, you know, is in the best interests of, of people and planet. And when you ask yourself the question, you know, what would it take for us to uh, get on top of climate change, you know, and all these issues, it's clear that we need big global systemic change. So the question for companies is. Uh, what are we doing to help create the conditions under which that big systemic change becomes possible? And I'm, you know, what heartens me, one of the things that heartens me is the way that those, those questions are being taken seriously, at least in some quarters in, in the asset management companies that we're starting to work with now. So they're really asking for a new kind of assessment of the extent to which companies can be, can A, considered to be pushing for a better world, and be considered to be able to thrive in a, in a world that's in transition. And just to give you an idea of how, how deep I think this kind of question goes. So I'll just give two examples of companies. So you know, we've been working a lot with Brewdog, who I'm really impressed with, um, because you know, you know, the start point is to say, oh, okay, what are we gonna do about our carbon footprint? And that is important. And how do we get to net zero? And if you're gonna, you know, we could talk about this all day, but it needs to be done in a way that is, you know, uh, also in the wider interest of the health of, of, of people and the, uh, and, and, the, and the wider environmental impact. But they're also, more importantly, they're asking, well, what should we be writing on our beer cans? And what should, how should we be engaging people when they go to the pub? And can a pub be a place where people learn to mend their clothes instead of going out and buying new stuff? And what's the whole, you know, what, you know how should we be lobbying and what is our potential systemic, um, systemic influence? And equally, if you're a company like another example, we've been looking at one of the companies we've been looking at for an asset portfolio is, uh, is Facebook. And you know, what's their carbon footprint? Well, actually, you know what? That's not the big question for them. The big question is if you stand back and say, what would it take for the, for the system change to become possible? Then you've got questions like, what is our influence on democracy? What is our influence over the extent to which humanity is able to sift fact from fiction? Those are perhaps, you know, you know, you know, those are absolutely critical and essential questions for those companies to be asking, but also asset managers to be asking whether when they're wondering uh, whether to invest or not. I'm going to uh, try and keep this quick. I could I could talk. Um, I could talk forever. But I think one of the uh, for the investment community, I think one of the you know, there's a there's a hard quest, a hard reality to face up to. And I've and I've been encouraged that I've been able to present this to rooms full of asset managers and they've and they've kind of uh, they've mainly nodded at least to my face if I say that you know you know what the reality is you can't seek to maximize profit and do the right thing for the environment it's actually it's 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 fake and unreal to say you can do those two things you can have profit that's true and you can seek to maximize value for yourselves and for your shareholders but you have to redefine value somewhat, or maybe even a lot. 
Um, and that's absolutely the right thing to do. And I think that's a kind of, that's a, a bit of a scary, that can be scary terrain to get into, but it's essential terrain to get into. I'll just, I'll just leave, finish with this, this, am I an optimist or not? I think what I would say is I'm not a determinist. So, you know, it's clear cut that if we carry on as we are, humanity is, is gonna, it's going to walk into a pretty dark place in the pretty near term. That looks, that looks pretty, that looks clear cut to me. And if you look at our carbon trajectory, you know, emissions, COVID accepted, emissions are still going up every year. So we need to completely and radically change, uh, uh, um, raise our game from, from anything that we've seen before. Um, on the other hand, it is not proven, you know, it looks like if we did take very strong action now, unlike anything we've seen at all, it looks likely that we could actually, if we were really smart about it, make life better than it's ever been for, for humanity and the other species as well. Um, it might be too late actually, but it looks very likely that it's not yet too late. So does that make me an optimist or a pessimist? Well, you know, I'm not a determinist. It makes me just say, well, you know, if we're not scared, we should be, but it looks like there is absolutely everything to play for. Mike, thank you very much indeed. That's, um, that's extremely challenging place to leave us. And I think it challenges all of our speakers. Um, we're, we're cantering through the time as I knew we would. So I'm just going to whip round with a few more thoughts before we bring in the audience. I mean, Jonathan, I was very struck by you saying, we have to actually get down by seven to 8% every year. Um, this year we've had the pandemic, we came down a tiny bit, we haven't done at all, and yet at the same time we all had to change our lives in a colossal way. What's, what's the reality of, of what it's going to be, especially taking on board what, what Mike said? I mean, are we, are we going to have to stop, I mean, are we going to have to stop doing many things? I think, again, it's what people are frightened of. I mean, we all want our cake and to eat it too. And in a way, you know, when we hear banks saying, yes, you can make money and you can kind of go on in your capitalist heaven at the same time as we're pulling down the emissions. I mean, clearly these equations don't all add up. <laughs> no, they don't. Um, we have to accelerate all the good things and we have to decelerate all the bad things and we have to do it at a speed that is almost inconceivable to politicians. If we wanted to, the UK could have 100% of its electricity from renewable sources by 2030. By 2030. Forget mm -hmm. 2040, 2050. If we actually wanted to treat the climate emergency as an emergency, rather than as something that we'll consider in due course, that's what we could do. And you can sort of see that the government has got a bit of an eye to that one, but nothing like what is really needed. We have got the technologies which will make that possible now. Particularly, we're blessed with this offshore wind story, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. So we have to do that, but we have to drive this efficiency story because there's no good generating a huge amount of renewably generated electrons if we're still wasting them in our homes, in our factories, in the places where we shop. So government has to incentivize this extraordinary push for energy efficiency by a combination of sticks and carrots to get to the point where every single person is enabled to live in really energy efficient, well insulated homes. Every single retailer has the state of the art technologies, every single person who's letting out offices. This is the kind of stuff that we have to do. So it is possible, you can see lots of people who've talked about a zero carbon Britain 
particularly the um, Center for Alternative Technology, and you can see what that downward trajectory looks like. But I can tell you, for absolutely guaranteed, there is not one single politician in Parliament today, apart from the wonderful Caroline Lucas, who actually has spent any time at all seriously looking at what that would mean. Yeah. Not one. Yeah, it's a big question for Hannah. Um, we could get, we could get there. What about the rest of the world? You work in international <laughs> development as well. I mean, yes, we can have loads of offshore wind off Cumberland, but yeah. So just um, so so the Oxfam, you know, recently published uh, an update of a report um, on on wealth and inequality and emissions, and two thousand one hundred fifty three billionaires have more wealth than 4.6 billion people combined. And you know, the richest 1% and all of us on this uh, call, I suspect are in that 1%, don't kid yourself, you know, that mm -hmm. you're not the 99. Uh, the richest 1% have double the emissions of the poorest half of humanity, that's 4 billion. So there's vast inequalities in our contributions and in our responsibility this is not even looking at historic stuff this is looking right now and that is the kind of thing that we have to get to grips with that's what the that is what these inequalities which are mirrored in emission terms are also manifesting themselves and we're much more aware of them in terms of access to green spaces you know environmental racism is recognized as a thing people during covid you know, some people's lockdowns were very, very pleasant. Other people's were a nightmare because they don't even have access to a green space, a roof, terrace, mm. a balcony. They just, you know, have huge levels of mental stress related to that one fact. So I think we are not going to get to this kinder, more compassionate global solidarity moment if we keep on going back to a more technocratic debate, if we keep turning this into a sort of manage, who can manage the economy the best, mm -hmm. we are gonna have to embrace something like the Green New Deal. Uh, and I think Jonathan, it's not fair to say, I love Caroline Lucas, um, totally agree with you on how wonderful she has been as a beacon, but actually Labour put forward the Green New Deal um, you know, Boris Johnson the other day talked about the industrial new revolution and being the new Saudi Arabia uh, in terms of uh, wind power. There are some very big ideas. And what we have to get to grips is, is why are they not happening? And they are largely not happening fast enough. And, uh, you know, coming back to my gluing my hands to shell moment is because we keep having a lot of talks like this and keep trying to engage those who just do not want to relinquish the immense wealth and power that they have and that their privileged positions at the decision-making table, they still want to drag this out. You know, they still are trying to confuse and obfuscate and delay, uh, you know, what's happening in regulatory terms, still trying to say, you know, we can dig up some clean oil. We still trying to say, you know, uh, the UK can do clean coal in some way. Yes, we'll yep. do CCS in some way. So these types of very big picture, essentially uh, technocratic engineering based denialist solutions, you know, which don't look at how quickly we could shift to that, you know, green world are what's stepping in the way, what's standing in the way. And we need to get to those individuals uh, uh, and, and do so very, very fast and use it very spiky actions, very spiky if necessary, 
non-violent civil civil disobedience, which is what I think has really transformed actually yeah. the the space that we now find ourselves in because we weren't in this space, you know, a year or two ago. We really were not. Well, thank you, thank you. Um, I'm going to start bringing in some of the audience questions. And um, Matt, I mean, a I'd love a response to what um, Mike said. You know, about a company has to do more than just you know it has has to be doing some social good in order to have relevance. But quite a lot of people are asking questions. I mean, Graham Young here saying my pension is ethically invested in ethically screened funds. Do you think these funds are sufficiently focused on the climate emergency? What can we do to make them focus more? Can you pick up both those points? Yeah, sure. So to take the first point <clears throat> around Mike's point, um, I would absolutely agree. And you know, this time last year, before Climate Week in 2019, you had the announcement from the business roundtable, some of the business, the biggest companies in the US stating very clearly that pure profit motive is, is not the way to go. And you've seen that worked out in the latest revision of boring things like UK company law, where we have to talk about our Section 172 companies at purpose. We have to articulate that wider responsibility to um, our stakeholder base. And I, I really do think that thinking is, is working its way through the boardroom now. We would certainly agree that, you know, a pure focus on, on profit is not the way to go. And if you want to read more about that, I recommend a piece that we did last year called Responsible Capitalism. Our head of asset allocation, Ed Smith, goes into it and puts the numbers behind that in a way that I'm, I, 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 I bow to his intellectual superiority on that one, but I'm sure we can send that round after. And onto the participants' question, again, a brilliant question. One of the ways in which regulation is helping here is pushing funds to disclose much, much better about what they're actually doing, not what they're saying, but what they're actually invested in, what they're voting on, um, the kind of ESG resolutions at AGMs. And there's some fantastic websites out there that can empower you to make better choices. And one I'll just mention that I was involved in is Your Faith, Your Finance, mm -hmm. uh, set up by an, uh, an NGO called the ECCR, which helps you look at those pension providers, investment providers, and ranks them. And also Your Ethical Money, which is a fantastic resource as well. So absolutely, transparency is the way to, to really hold the feet to the fire and call them out if they're not following through on their aspirations. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, Mike, coming back to you, I mean, a couple of things. I mean, one, is it actually possible to have a capitalist system and achieve what we need to achieve? And then this sort of takes us on to, I mean, a really interesting question from Alistair Johnson about COP26. And that obviously, you know, we're all, well, it's a year late and we're leading up to it. I mean, what, what do you think the main contributor organisations who profited massively from fossil fuels and emissions? Um, we know there are talks going on about whether they're going to be allowed to sponsor them. I mean, how are we going to resist the greenwashing? Okay, so first, first up, the, the the capitalism thing. I think I mean, well, you know, Fahana's absolutely right. I think if you uh, about the inequality thing, uh, you know, e even if we weren't to care about it enough in its own right, it's pretty clear cut. I think you you can't deal with climate unless you deal with inequality. I mean, the two are just uh, linked in with each other, uh, you know, just, just, just hugely. So, um, you know, there's a whole, you know, it's not that money's bad, but we focus on it far too much. And, uh, you know, we need to rework our metrics, you know, and if we can just be open-minded enough to do that, actually, we can, we can pursue things which are, uh, we, you know, we can, we can, uh, we can pursue things that are far more directly important in terms of well-being and of, of people and, and planet. So there's absolutely some, you know, some 
big reworking of, uh, of how we do economics in all this. Uh, you know, the way that, the way that in, yeah, just in terms of, you know, a COP26 funded by fossil fuel companies, I mean, that would be uh, pretty, pretty awful. I mean, so I think, you know, my, my daughter read um, a, a while ago uh, a book on the history of cancer, and we got, to, we were reading it together to the bit where, where the scientists worked out that smoking actually caused cancer and suddenly the, the tobacco industry um, changed from being this benign leisure uh, industry to, to, you know, really deeply, deeply nasty. And the sophistication of that response, and it's so echoed by the way that, you know, the tobacco, the, the fossil fuel industry has absolutely mirrored what, what the tobacco industry did. And, you know, I've, I've, um, I was at a conference with Shell the other day, and I just, you know, we heard Ben Van Burden do a talk, Kevin Anderson and I had, and we were on the panel afterwards, and we both just had to say, you know, look, everything you've been hearing is, it's a load of, is a load of rubbish, you know, you know really poisonous greenwash, but very syrupily um, and, and persuasively laid out. So, I, you know, I, th I think the idea of a COP26 funded by fossil fuel companies would be poison. So thank you for that. That's, uh, that's very clear. Um, another question here from Piers Ibbotson saying that, I mean, all of you, rightfully, because this is what this is about, have been talking about investment and business, but what do you think the role of government ought to be and how do we influence them and um, to make it more possible and easier for businesses to go in the right direction? I mean, Jonathan, can I come to you with that? And then Fahana, can I come to you with that as well afterwards? Because you've certainly done different things, I think. I think this is a question of parallel tracks, to be honest. We have to keep up the pressure through conventional means. We have to use all the lobbying influence we can. We have to allow the voice of business now to be as influential with government ministers as it can be. We couldn't call on that business voice before. Now you've got statements from business leaders that are, if anything, more eloquent often than anything else. And they're not all bullshitters, Mike. I totally agree with you about Ben Van Buren. He is an arch bullshitter. But there are an awful lot of companies who've got CEOs who are out there very authentically arguing a, a really strong case. So all of that works well with business, works well with government because they kind of like to think they're in line with, with business. So we have to do that. And we have to get this shift going in terms of how government incentivizes the good things and penalizes the bad things. You cannot do without that set of government sticks and carrots. Mm -hmm. But the second track, and the one that I think has been exemplified over the last couple of years, we need much more radical action now. We need to put those politicians under a different kind of pressure than that which is exercised in the corridors of power. And that does mean more civil disobedience. It means a much more powerful set of tactics around nonviolent direct action. I think XR has been an utterly uh, brilliant eruption of new and mm -hmm. creative energy. And the way they've refashioned themselves this year, honestly, I completely yeah. love that because it was a tricky end for XR in 2019, or tricky end to 2019 for XR. But for me, it's the power of young people. It's been a hard year for young people. They found climate activism a really tough call in, in COVID times, but getting young people back out there bringing their truth to power, that's going to be a really important part of this. Fahana, I'm going to give you the last word on that about, you know, really, um, and then I want to come to all of you just quickly about what we can all do. So if, if you can respond to that question and then also say 
what should everybody, the thousand or so people that we've got out there listening? So, uh, so, so on governments matter, laws matter, international frameworks matter uh, a lot. And, uh, you know, the immediate focus should be on trying to get the sustainable development goals, which were adopted in 2015, the Biodiversity Convention and the Paris goals all aligned. And then as a package to increase one of these nerdy things called national climate, uh, nationally determined contributions, national plans. So this really matters. This is what we were supposed to deliver. And citizens, including our young people, you know, their test is, does anything that you've done and said for the last 30 years matter if you haven't delivered yet again what you promised us five years ago? And that's, again, as a mother of four children, it was like, mum, why are you doing this still? You know, and I have to make that matter. So we have to hold governments to account, do it in creative, permissionless, now COVID-friendly ways. And uh, I think, you know, there are a, a thousand splendid ideas and we cannot allow anyone to get off scot-free with greenwash and bullshit. It's like, where's your action plan? That's what you have to ask every single time. And that has to be a speeded up action plan that includes social equity, including for our young people. You know, I have children from the age of 26 down to 13, you know, crossing many different cohorts who are implicated and they are blissfully, uh, you know, to, to, to end with what should they do are in a very different place. They don't want to be associated or uh, align themselves with brands and with consumption that is hurting the planet and hurting their, their, mm -hmm. their friendships and hurting, you know, the, the, their sense of what equity and justice is about. They really, really feel that. And I feel that there's a very beautiful movement evolving because they are not tainted by the same um, at the moment, cynicism, structures of power, you know, egos, turf wars, all the rest of it that yeah. we have had. So um, I, I place a lot of faith in, in, in their creativity and ability to, to hold governments to account, to hold CEOs to account. Thank you. Um, Matt, what would you say as a call to action for people? I would say that, you know, going back to what I said, not leaving your money on the sidelines in this fight. You know, so many people make so many decisions uh, every day but your money is working for you behind the scenes. And if it's not aligned with the right person, if it's not aligned with the right goal, then it's subtly undermining everything you do. And that goes to your pension, to your insurance, mm. and even if you're lucky enough to be in that place to invest. But I would also say as well, you know, decisions are made by those who show up. Yeah. And quite often in very boring Zoom calls or parish halls. And for every clicktivism thing we do, consider joining a local action committee Mm -hmm. The fact that you signed up to this event and actually showed up to it shows that you'll be if more effective than 95% of people on a local council or a local initiative than anyone else already there. You can make a huge difference in a very boring place in a small way. Um, but I would consider those two things. Firstly, you know, empower your money to, to move it into the right areas and then consider showing up. Showing to up. Yeah, well, I'm a great believer in showing up. Jonathan. I'm sticking to the finance theme, Rosie, as that's what this evening is all about, and I'm with Matt on this. I, I, I would hesitate to guess how many of those who are on this call have actually done a 100% get your money out of the wrong places and get your money into the right places, but I'll bet you yeah. it's probably not much more than 25% of people involved in this call. It endlessly astonishes me how much people who should know about the power of investing the right way 
don't invest in the right way. So that's the thing to do, get it right yourself and then get one other person to do it because this is where you really can magnify the power of money. And people don't think of it in that way, but um, Matt's absolutely right. It's, it is a very important part of the total transition purpose. Great. Um, Mike, last word to you. Okay, so I, I, you know, we have to have the change. It's a flat out emergency. And I, I am gonna echo Jonathan's earlier point about, about protest. And I don't say this as somebody who thinks instinctively, oh goody, won't it be fun to take to the streets? But you know, we have to have the change. And you know, there's no doubt that Extinction Rebellion and the school kids between them opened up a lot of political space and, and gave permission, including amongst asset management companies, you know, to, for people to raise their game uh, and for the, you know, for the conversations in businesses to, to really change. So, you know, consider the right kind of protest. And I think it's got to be really insistent and really positive and really visionary and in, incredibly cleverly done. And I absolutely take my hat off to the best things that, that Extinction Rebellion have, have done. So the first thing is protest. And the second thing is, you know, we all need to tune into this every time we either spend or invest money you are pushing for one world or another so we need to we need to understand our supply chains and just any time we do yeah. any money that's it we're pushing for one future or another thank you thank you all so much and thank you everybody who wherever you are for joining in i know there's a lot of people all over the place um there's a good quote from Al Gore that we dug up saying every investor, no matter how large or small, has the power to help address our climate crisis and build a more sustainable world. So whatever it is, your pension, your mortgage, and I'm sure Jonathan is right that most of us have not really cleaned up our act right through. So first of all, I'd like to thank all the audience. Um, I'd also like to invite you all to join us on the 18th of November when we're going to be looking at a more consumer facing side of the argument. Uh, Dieter Helm, among others, will be with us. Um, I think we've all realized as a result of tonight just what massive levers the, the finance industry has and that we're not going to get anywhere until we move this. And I know that all our panelists tonight have been working and campaigning and pushing this along. And it's really thanks to people like them that we have got to this semi-optimistic moment where we can look forward to at least a good chance of being able to do something about it. And also to know always that our voices count. As Matt said, show up, turn up, buy some shares in a company and tip up at their AGM and raise your voice because it's amazing what a small thing can do. And someone we all know who, who works in a company said that they got two calls suddenly about what kind of fuel they were using. And this had never happened before. And suddenly just a small thing starts to make behavior change. Um, the question has to be, you know, how do we make our money work for all of us rather than just going out there to work for money? So I'd like to thank Mike Berners-Lee, Fahana Yahan, Yamin, sorry, Matt Crossman and Jonathan Porrick very, very much for their time tonight. And uh, I'd like to thank Rathbones as ever for being great partners and look forward to seeing you all in a month. Take care. Bye-bye.